Welcome to Understand Suicide, the podcast of journalist and therapist Paola Fontanelli. Since her father's suicide in 2005, Paola has dedicated her life to breaking the silence around this most stigmatized of subjects. Her book, Understanding Suicide, Living with Loss, Paths to Prevention, was nominated for the National Book Award in Brazil, and the English edition is now available on Amazon. Hello. Before today's episode, I would like to ask you to please review and rate my podcast because it does help with the ranking and makes it much easier and more visible for people to find. So you would actually be helping individuals like you. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. My guest today is Donna Schurman. She is the Senior Director of Advocacy and Training at the Dogie Center, which is a place I absolutely admire here in Portland, Oregon. Thank you so much for being with us, Donna. Oh, it's my pleasure, Paula. Thank you for inviting me. Can we start talking about what you do and what the Dogie Center does? Sure. Well, the Dougie Center was the first program of its kind in the United States, possibly the world. We started in back in 1981, working with children as young as three and up through young adults and their adult caregivers or parents, family members who would ex have experienced the death of a family member or in the case of teens and young adults, it could also be a close friend. Mm -hmm. uh, about seven or eight years ago, we added groups for families who have someone with an advanced serious illness in their family, mm -hmm. ALS, brain tumor. And we do grief support groups every other week throughout the year that are by age, three to five, six to 10, young teens, teens and young adults. There's a mm -hmm. concurrent group that meets for the parents or adult caregivers. They meet for an hour and a half every other week for as long as they want to, mm -hmm. as long as someone wants to participate. Uh, not unusual for families to participate 15 to 18 months, some less, some more. There's no prescribed amount of time. Everyone grieves differently. Mm -hmm. And there's no charge for the families. They were a nonprofit supported by the community. So yes. since about 70% of our families have had a father die. Really? Um, so many yeah. fathers? Wow. Well, uh, maybe 60% father, mm -hmm. and then uh, maybe 20 or 30 mother, and then the rest is, you know, death of a child, a sibling, or a mm -hmm. friend. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it's interesting that you, you mentioned that you have groups for those who have, for example, parents who have terminal illness, because that's grief too. We tend to think about yes. grief as just the final thing after. It's something that starts when someone dies, but it's not, isn't it? it it's a process, right. isn't right. it? Right, right. Well, Donna, let's, I thought we could talk about childhood grief today mm -hmm. because i i have heard for, from so many parents over these many years that i've been working with grief and especially suicide grief but they never know what to do so they mm -hmm. have a child and should i talk to them should i tell them should i explain about this for example should they participate in the ceremonies and 
It, it's a very hard decision. And parents with the best of intentions, sometimes they overprotect these kids, which can get in the way, I believe, of their grief. So can we start with that? Can you oh. talk to parents and say, okay, here's how we should or we could think about grief and, and, and help our kids go through it? Yeah, I first want to acknowledge something you said, Paula, that I think is really important, which is it's not easy. No one wants to have to say to their child, your father died, your brother, sister, your teacher, even, you know, your cat or dog died. It's mm -hmm. not easy. So I want to acknowledge that up front. And we always want to protect our children mm -hmm. from pain to the best of our abilities. However, death is a fact of life. And the sooner that we can help our children understand that not everything lives forever, not every person, not every animal, the better. So I suggest that people use early examples, a, a bird, you know, a dead bird, a dead pet or whatever, to talk about that everybody has a, an end to their life. The, the real key issues are, number one, to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. um, because children, when they find out or if they find out that they're lied to, then begin to question everything else you're telling me. I don't know mm -hmm. whether to believe you or not. Yeah. And with young children, to tell them in concrete ways using language that they can understand. They'll have lots of questions. Let them ask the questions. Answer them honestly. And if they sense that you don't want to answer them, they'll stop asking them. They'll just kind of go underground. They won't stop wondering. Which doesn't mean that their grief is done, right? It's no, just it just buried. means, exactly. Or they can tell from the response that they get that, oh, I'm not supposed to talk about this mm. because it makes dad sad or it makes mom cry or whatever. So be honest. I mean, I just say that the easiest way to say something is I have some very sad news and just say, mm -hmm. You know. And acknowledge the emotion. It's a sad news. Yeah. It's sad this news. is sad news. And I wish I didn't have to, to tell you this. But And then just say whatever happened. Daddy died today. Or mm. depending on what history they have, if they knew the person was ill and back and forth, you would share it in a slightly different way. As you know, mommy had cancer. Mm -hmm. And the doctors were trying to, to make her better and it got too bad and they couldn't make her better from the cancer and the cancer um, took over and she died. Mm -hmm. um, you just said she died. I have a question for you because I have done so much research on this and I've never gotten an answer. Mm -hmm. When do kids know that death is irreversible? Well, it depends on their experience. It depends mm -hmm. culturally. For example, mm -hmm. like kids, kids who grow up in rural areas on farms, for example, understand death typically oh, a lot a earlier yeah. than, than some other kids. If they've had a personal experience, all those kinds of things. I think even, I mean, you know, four or five-year-olds probably don't know for a fact that it's irreversible or like, well, I know you said daddy's dead, but will he be dead all day? Mm -hmm. You know, or when is he coming back? Or people yes. say things that make it confusing, uh -huh. like um, your sister's with God now. And I'm not suggesting in any way that that's not okay to say. Yes. I'm just saying also make it clear that they have died. Because, yeah. 
you know, it's like, well, God had her long enough. I want her back now. Yeah, that's, and we go back to the point that you started. Use concrete words, yeah. because as you said, you may say, oh, he passed away or she passed away. And then the child may just wait for them to come. It's okay. The, when are they coming back? Yeah. It's just not concrete enough. So and they I think have being, to understand. Being very concrete to say, you know, when, when people die, their bodies don't move anymore. They can't see us. They can't hear us. I mean, with little kids, I'd say like, they can't laugh. They can't poop. They can't cry. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't see them anymore because mm -hmm. they have left their body. Mm -hmm. So they're, you know, struggle to understand what that means, but ultimately they do. Yes. I, you just, you just reminded me of such a powerful image in one of your videos online this little, uh, I think she was three years old, blonde, mm -hmm. very cute, beautiful girl. And she actually had difficulty saying the words because she was so young, but I thought it was so poignant. And she said, I wanted to sing the ABC with my mom. And then she stopped singing and then her body stopped singing. Yeah. And then I, uh, there was a beautiful moment in the video when the facilitator says, um, Yes, and then what happened? Mm -hmm. So she was actually trying maybe to, for her to express emotion. And she said, yeah, I have a bad feeling. Something bad happened. I had a very bad feeling. Yeah. So it actually let her express yeah. her emotions. How important is it for the kids to actually talk about their emotions? Well, you know, some kids are talkers and some kids aren't talkers. Mm -hmm. So kids who aren't real verbal aren't going to suddenly become verbal. I think what's, what's more important is to find ways to express them, mm -hmm. their feelings. So some of that happens through talking, but a lot of it happens through play, through mm -hmm. expressing what they're thinking through play. And I love to play with two, three, four, five-year-olds, and mm -hmm. I just let them boss me around and tell me. Mm -hmm. and, and if you let them do that, mm -hmm. you'll find out what they're wondering about. They'll start assigning you roles. You know, you're the doctor and I'm, I'm the sick kid. And, and I'll say, okay. Um, and then you just go with it. And that's mm -hmm. how you find out what they're wondering about. It's a little bit that, of play therapy. Yeah, yeah. Just, well, just play, you know, play mm -hmm. is their therapy. So yeah, because speak. that's how they express themselves. Right. Exactly. So it's not necessarily uh, verbal. It's not the verbal expression, but find a way, depending, of course, the parents who know who their kids are, find a way that for them, that's the way they express, maybe drawing, maybe singing or. Yeah. And maybe throwing things safely. Mm -hmm. You know, so a lot of children that we see who are, say, three, four five, they're angry. Like, I want my mom back. Well, I would be angry, too. And so what we have to help them see is it's OK to be angry, but it's not OK to bite people. It's not okay to kick your so brother. Boundaries. Yeah. yeah, but to say, you know what? Here's the thing we could do when we're really angry. And you could say, we're going to throw Nerf balls or little balls at the wall. Or mm -hmm. we're going to, we have a room at the Dougie Center called the Volcano Room. And it's really yeah. just an emotion expression room to, mm -hmm. to get these things out of your body. Mm -hmm. So the volcano room is the one for anger, right? When they can no, throw no, stuff? It's, no, it's not actually anger. Not it's for just, that? Oh, okay. Just an energy. Oh, energy. energy okay. And emotion and it's mm -hmm. not just anger. Mm -hmm. um, so that they don't, aren't keeping it in their bodies. Oh, okay. You know? 
Mm-hmm. I also saw that you have a hospital room. Yes. I thought that was so symbolically important because many really, of the kids, they, that's some of them, that's what they went through for months sometimes, right? Yes. Years. Yes. And what's interesting, so we have a, uh, a hospital that donated, you know, a pediatric hospital mm-hmm. bed and lots of supplies. And what happens in there is it very so interesting. The children don't ever really want to be the patient. They want to be the doctor or the nurse that makes you better. Mm, and it's true. about, you know, controlling and, and, and feeling empowered again, when you feel help, helpless and powerless mm-hmm. to have control over something. Mm-hmm. Do you work with art too? Is art oh, yes. important? Very, very. So we have all, we have uh, several art rooms. We have a splatter paint room. We have clay and art, uh, mm-hmm. all kinds of art materials, mostly non-directive. Like there it all is. You do what you want to do with it. Sometimes we'll have art therapy uh, students, for example, lead maybe a mask making exercise or something. But more often than not, it's allowing the children to choose the mediums they want to work through, whether it's painting, clay, you know, mm-hmm. glitter, all kinds of just materials for them. Mm-hmm. What about uh, rituals? Uh, this is another question that I see many times. Should they participate in the funeral, in the wake, or should they have a voice, or should they have the, at least the choice of going or not? Yeah. I, I'm a big advocate of informed choice. Mm-hmm. So not being forced to do things you don't want to do and not being, not being allowed to participate in things you might want to do. But kids don't necessarily know what those are. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I had a friend who died. She had a five-year-old son. And what we said to him was, um, we're having a, people are getting together because they loved your mom. And what we're going to do is show pictures of her and some people will be crying. We're going to play music she loved. And the floors in the room are are brown and the walls will be blue. Mm -hmm. And the more we could prepare him, he came in, he's like, yeah, the walls are blue. And so it was Mm -hmm. not foreign. And he had an opportunity during it to speak if he wanted to. And he came up and talked, took the microphone it was really amazing. His father yeah. was shocked. Because it was something that he was prepared for. He knew well, he, what was expected. He, he didn't think his son would, would talk, but you know, mm-hmm. he said it shocked him. And I said, ask him why he did it. Mm-hmm. And he said, she was my mom and I loved her and other people talked about her and I wanted to talk about her too. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. 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 What about the parents' grief? I mean, how much of it should you share with kids? Well, you know, I think they're taking their cues from us as parents and mm-hmm. it's okay. I think what's not helpful is like to go in a room, cry, come out looking like you've cried, but pretend nothing's wrong. Mm. It's, it's they better know. to, yeah, cause they know. And then they're like, ah, oh, it's not okay to share this to say, you know, I was having a memory today about your brother mm-hmm. and it made me sad because I was thinking about how much he liked vanilla ice cream on a hot day like this and how we can't have it with him again. But, you know, we could have some and remember him, you know, do Mm -hmm. do you want to do that? And I think it's important to keep them out of the problems of things. If they're 
as much as possible. Like we're taking care of things, but we're all going to be sad sometimes and that's okay. And we want to be able to remember him or her and say their name and mm -hmm. share memories together. Even if it makes us sad, some of them will make us happy. Mm -hmm. What about saying goodbye? Because rituals, they have a value and I think they have a place in healing when it comes yeah. to grief. Let's say they don't go to the funeral, they don't participate mm -hmm. and they didn't have maybe a chance to say mm -hmm. goodbye. Is it important to maybe create a ritual with the child? I think it can be really helpful. Again, they're not going to necessarily know what those op opportunities or options are, but we've done some of that with children at the Dougie Center, for example, who a parent died in another state. Maybe the parents were divorced. Uh, they weren't able to travel to the service or there wasn't a service. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you can have your own service. Like, what would you do if you could do one and do it with them, have them, whether it's photos, drawings, music. Um, I think about it as punctuation of life events. Mm -hmm. And death is one of those life events that when we have that coming together and we have that punctuation of it, it happened. There's something about those kinds of rituals that are important. If you want more information about suicide, my book is now available on Amazon, both in paperback and digital formats. Just type in the title, Understanding Suicide, or my name, Paula Fontinelli. The book was written for people like you, and it's the result of more than 10 years of conversations with families who lost loved ones to suicide, individuals who attempted suicide, specialists, and mental health professionals. Thank you for your support. Now back to the interview. I, I was thinking now about more, more of teenagers, for example, because we're talking about choice and giving them space to mm -hmm. express their feelings. And teenagers, they tend to keep it to themselves and be, isolate themselves, stay in the room. So how, when do you know that you maybe have waited too long? And if they're not expressing at all, they're not talking about it, I mean, when, when should it be the point for a parent to say, okay, listen, we need to talk about this? Yeah, I would, um, again, every teenager is a little bit different, but I would look for other behaviors if there are concerning behaviors, changes. So mm -hmm. I've had parents say like, you know, my son won't talk to me about how he's feeling. And I'm like, well, did he talk to you before this happened? No. Well, he's not going to now then, most likely. But to say, you know, I want to make sure that I'm doing everything that's best for you. Do you have friends you can talk to? But what I would be looking for is changes in behavior, like a child, a teen who cared about how they looked and now doesn't, or mm -hmm. isolates from friends, or is secretive, or is drinking, or, you know, radical changes in behavior. And Risky as a parent, behavior, I would, yeah. yeah, and I would say to my child, like, I've never gone through this before either. And I'm not a teenager right now and I don't want to bug you, but I also care, you know, can you help me know how I can best help you? What are the things that I could do that would help you the most? Mm -hmm. And they might say, just leave me alone. I'll talk about it when I want to. So be it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and to just say, well, I am going to check in every now and then. Is that okay? Can I do that? 
So again, just give them space and choice. Yeah, choice, space, mm-hmm. let them know you care, but don't force them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a good friend who, who died actually two years ago tomorrow uh, of suicide, jumped off a bridge here in Portland. Mm-hmm. And her son was 11 at the time, and I was there um, when we told him. And, you know, he asked the questions he wanted to ask when he was ready for the answers. And I told him, I want to be one of those adults in your life that you're not avoiding because every time I see you, I'm making you talk about it. You know, yeah. I started self-isolating from adults. Like everybody wants to know how I feel all the time. You know, mm-hmm. just leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And it would be like while driving, he would start talking about how he felt or let's go hit some golf balls at a golf range take a walk, ride bikes, let's do normal things. And I took him skiing this uh, year and he, the, the drive there, he talked the whole time and I never asked him how he was doing. And I think as parents, we also need to not over push them because we'll push our teens away from us if we push too hard. Yeah. You just talked about suicide. So let's, let's dive into that. Uh, because do you find that the grief from your experience at the doggy center that there are differences in grief when it's suicide? I think so. And, you know, some of it is societal that families mm-hmm. tend not to get as much support as they would when someone dies of suicide, that they would if the person had died in a car crash or of cancer. So that's a larger societal piece and a stigma that's often attached. I think it's harder in, in some ways for bereaved people because they feel sometimes like it could have prevented, like the if onlys may be heightened, mm-hmm. you know, they might be there with cancer, like why didn't we go to the doctor sooner? Or why did I let them take the car? But they're heightened when there's a suicide death because we relive it maybe, mm-hmm. you know, more of like, was there something more I could have done? Did I miss things? Should I, if onlys, what ifs? Mm-hmm. And those are really haunting. And there aren't magical answers to them. But the thing that I say that I believe truly is common in every suicide death is that the person's perception of their emotional pain outweighed their ability to handle it. You know, mm-hmm. and, and those of us, us around can say, but I was here for you, or I would have if you'd only made a call, but the person wasn't able in their pain to perceive options of getting out of their pain other than to die. Including uh, reach out. I, I interviewed someone from England the other day, and he was telling me that he, he actually, he did all the planning, and he left a letter to his daughter, he left and he was, going to, he was going to do the same, to jump off a, a bridge. And all, on the way then, he, sat, and he told me, Paula, and I sat down. I had my phone in my hand. And the whole time I was hoping that someone would call me. Yeah. And then I, I thought, wow, 7 billion people in the world and nobody knows the pain I'm experiencing right now. And he kept on 
postponing and to just waiting for that phone to 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 yeah. ring so it just it just shows but but then he said i started thinking about my daughter and he started reliving my life and waiting for that phone to ring and i realized you know what i have a lot to live for and he mm-hmm. said after that my perception completely changed mm-hmm. But it's this idea that it's not just the pain, because that's mostly what's happening. It's not about dying, but it's about ending that pain, that moment. And he said that after that, life just was transformed. Because he suddenly realized that I I do have things to live for. I'm I'm not ready for this yet. Yeah. I think you make an important point there, which is I don't think most people who are suicidal want to die. Mm -mm. They want to get out of pain. No. Yeah, they want to get out of pain. And even when they do want to end life, they want to end that specific life they're living. Mm-hmm. So sometimes if you change it, and if you mm-hmm. make some changes, you can, you can actually save a yeah, life. Yeah, and they can't always see that. And that's where, you mm-hmm. know, friends and family, and, mm-hmm. and even then, I mean, my friend who jumped off the bridge, I, a week before she died, I said, you have 20 people you could call any time of the day and any of us would be there in a split second and and we love you and she said i know i know and you know mm-hmm. i think uh also thomas joiner who's written a lot about yeah i've read suicide. his books yeah uh the thing that i one of the things that i think uh i appreciate is that sometimes people who are suicidal think that they're a burden to other people mm-hmm. the perceived burdensomeness and like people are better off without me and we all wish we could bring our friend back to say, we're not better off without you. We loved you. We want yeah, you here. Yeah. Your son needed you. Mm-hmm. Um, That's one aspect of suicide that I think it comes with the stigma too and the misconceptions we have mm-hmm. is that it's, it's selfish. Yeah. It's actually altruistic sometimes. They do yeah. believe that they'll be yeah. better off. And I can say that from my own case, my dad, after um, two days before he he took his life he wrote me a letter and that's how he started and he posted the letter and that's how he started i'm sure you'll be better off without me yeah and that is so common to see in suicide yeah, notes it's very frequent and again it's a misperception it's the person's pain is overwhelming their ability to see and to really take in that love and to see a future for themselves Mm-hmm. And people who have been suicidal and lived, um, we can learn, we do learn a lot from to say, well, what keeps you alive now? Mm-hmm. You know, and it's things like hope, love, being connection, uh, connection, purpose, giving back. Yes. Mm-hmm. Purpose is so important. And yes. as you just said, uh, giving back. Yeah. So do you have groups for, uh, do you separate it at all? Or is it just yeah. grief itself? Or no, do we have do. Suicide uh, grief? We have over 450 families. So 70 different groups happening. We divide them by age, but also death of a parent, mm-hmm. death of a sibling. And then we also have specific healing after a suicide death. They don't have to go in that group. If they had a death of a parent, they could go in a death of a parent mm-hmm. group but we do have that, those specific groups, unfortunately also for homicide, Mm. uh, after homicide death. And so, 
uh, I would say most of the families who start out in a general group of a death of a parent or a sibling who've had a homicide death, a murder, or a murder-suicide, or a suicide death, um, tend to move to the more specific groups because they don't want to be the only one in that group that, you know, has had a suicide death mm -hmm. or a homicide death. Donna, how do you explain to a child? Because this is, I, I saw again in, in one of your videos online, and it was just so moving to me, uh, a young boy, maybe he was 10, I, I don't mm. know his age, but he was talking about the uh, his dad, dad's suicide, and he saw it. And, I, and it, to me, it was so touching because he actually did that, and then he took the gun and he shot himself in the heart. He actually yeah. did this, yeah. which was so powerful. So how do you explain to kids, because the issue of choice, how can you explain yeah. to a child that your father chose to do this or yeah. your mother chose to do yeah. this? Yeah, I don't, I don't use that terminology. Mm -hmm. um, I would say if it's a choice, it's a choice of someone who is not able to think clearly mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people have, of health problems, physical health problems that take their lives, their heart's not working right. Mm -hmm. And we didn't even know it. They're out jogging and they, they just die. We have other people who have problems with their heart and we know it and they get better. Or we have people who have problems with their heart. They go to the doctors and they still die. Sometimes people have emotional problems or problems in their lives that feel overwhelming to them. Mm -hmm. And so they become um, in a different kind of pain, like emotional pain or psychic. I love Edwin Schneidman. Ed Schneidman is my, my yeah. idol. I, I love really him. like that terminology. It's not used yes. very Psy often, but, no, psych but it's psychic, you know, an ache yeah. of the psyche. It's not just a brain problem. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's more than that. But you can say that someone was in a different kind of pain, emotional pain. Mm -hmm. And that pain took over. It got bigger than they could handle. And so to get out of the pain, they took their life. They mm -hmm. jumped off a bridge. They took too many drugs. They shot, he shot himself, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually... Do you, do you have to be concrete too when it's suicide? Do you... Well, not, not initially. So, mm -hmm. you know, you say he died. Sad news, okay. he died. When they ask how, tell them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And don't give any more detail of than any they're age? asking for. Would you tell a child of any age? It was. I would. Yes, okay. I would. Because here's why. They're going to hear it from other people. Okay. Even to the best of our ability, they are going to hear it. Now, I would try not to go into grotesque detail around it. Of course, yeah. But yeah. I would say, you know, she jumped off a bridge. I'm not going to say what bridge yet, unless you ask. Mm -hmm. But, you know, yeah. she died. How'd she die? She jumped off a bridge. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting you're saying this, and, and I'm thinking about, I have a, um, <clears throat> a nephew and a niece, so my niece was five when my father died, and I remember maybe two years after that, I, when I wrote the book and I published a book about, you know, about my father's death, and she asked, well, oh, you have a new book, what is it about? And I said, well, it's about suicide prevention. And she, she was seven, I think. And she said, what is suicide? And I went, wow. This, that was the first time I had to explain <laughs> to a child what suicide yeah. is. And then actually, I used some of your words. I talked about emotion. It was too much for him. He was sad. He was having problems. So I went more uh, um, 
to talk more about what he was going through at the time. And, and then the other experience I had that until today, I think it's just amazing that it happened in my family. When I have a book published about this is my nephew when my father died, maybe 10 years later. This was like five years ago. He's 21 now. And mm-hmm. I was at home with him talking and we were talking about smoking for some reason. And he said, you know, aunt, I would never smoke because of my, what happened to my granddad. I said, you need to my, to dad, to my dad. He said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, that's why he died. That's how he died. He had lung cancer, right? And I just looked at him and said, what? This was like 10 years after my dad died, Mm -hmm. at least 10 years. And I said, what do you mean? He didn't die of lung cancer. Who Mm -hmm. told you that? And he said, well, my mom told me, my grandmother, because he didn't live with us. He lived in another state. And I was just, I said, no, that's not how he died. And I explained to him and he was so shocked. Yeah. And this this isn't in my family and I'm you know I work with this and nobody had ever talked to him about this. Yeah. Well that's the piece of we think we're protecting them by withholding that information but we're really not protecting them because they're going to find out. Mm-hmm. And you know and then it's like well why did you lie to me and what else have you not told me or what else have you lied to me about? That's what mm-hmm. that sets up. Mhm. Donna, just I have two more questions. Okay. Uh, one is when can I parent? Can a parent identify that their kid is having a problem with grief? Maybe they're not expressing, or the way they're expressing. How the signs that you briefly talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think I look for real changes, mm-hmm. and you know, it, and, and it's hard to tell sometimes because a parent will say, "Well, I don't know if he's just being a teenager or if it's his grief." And it's not that simple to separate it out. But if they're withdrawing, if they're angry all the time, if they're um, not in co- contact, like have cut off friends, um, if they're become incommunicative with you or have shown no motivation at all over a period of time. I'm not saying just moments of that because moments of that are are normal responses, natural Mm -hmm. responses, but isolating, separating. And what should they do if they do identify those? Yeah, well, I recommend that they contact a, um, and I use this word, it's important, qualified mental health professional, because there are a lot of people out there who have uh, degrees, but no training in grief and loss. And I could write an encyclopedia on the stories I've mm, heard. I can from imagine. Families. I can yeah. imagine. I have heard some horror stories too. Yeah. Yeah. Of bad advice that they've been given by people with supposedly with master's degrees or doctorates or even psychiatrists. So what I would do is recommend, you know, call a play, call, ask for, ask the person what their training is, how they approach grief uh, with, and, and how they would work. It's okay to interview your therapist. You know, can I have 10 minutes of your time to find mm-hmm. out if this is the right fit for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I think it's in, when it comes to suicide, even more. Yes. Because there is a lot of stigma. There's a lot, it's yeah. a taboo. And some people do. I heard a story that until today was one of the worst stories I've heard of a family. And the 
he was having depression. He was in his 50s. He was experiencing uh, depression very badly. And he went to a psychiatrist, psychiatrist and he, who saw him for a few months. And one day the psychiatrist called his daughter and said, can you come? I want you to participate in a session because I need to talk to you. So here's what he said, because at that point, uh, the father was already talking about suicide. So he told the girl, you know what the problem is with your father? He's spoiled. He's always had everything he wanted. He doesn't know how to deal with frustration. He gets worse. So he said he doesn't know how to deal with frustration. He never heard a no in his life. And he keeps saying he's going to kill himself. And he might. And you know what's going to happen? Your, your brother, who was one year old at the time, is going, he might even do the same because your father did it. And I, can't, I cannot treat him anymore. Wow. Can you imagine this is a no. doctor? No. A doctor. A when she told yeah. me, I said, no. This is like the top of the worst stories I have ever yeah. heard in I my mean, life. I mean, that person should lose their license. Yeah. <laughs> I asked them, did you file a complaint about this? No, because you know how it is. They're in pain. They're desperate. They're trying to save their dad's life. They yeah. just go to the next, right? Yeah. Well, there are a lot of therapists who, if you express suicidal ideation, don't want to see you anymore. Yeah. It's... And that's just when you need that. So, yeah. but there's not good enough training out there. It's not required training for people to get masters and doctorates in helping professions. And it should be. It should and there's be more mandatory. drive. Yeah. It should be mandatory, I think, because yeah. you will have a patient with suicidal thoughts. Exactly. It's inevitable. Well, also, most therapists are not trained in grief, mm -hmm. working with families who are grieving a, a yeah. death. So they're kind of learning it on the fly, and uh, it, it ought to be required, because that's why people, people go to seek help, because of loss, losses of all kinds. Yeah, but again, you, you, you talked about society. We are, just, we are not supposed to talk about grief. It's something we put in a drawer, close yeah. it, and get over with, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, even, um, you know, our idea that only old people die in their sleep at home peacefully, and very few people actually die that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> quite rare. Well, all I can say is that some people do have the doggy center. They're fortunate enough to have you. Thank you. To have your team. Thank and you. And I can't wait until this stay home thing ends so I can come and visit. Yes, please do. It would be <laughs> a real pleasure. <laughs> I want to end with one of the activities that uh, I've seen on your website. It gives you a, the beginning of a sentence, and I would like to finish with you okay. doing this exercise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the first one is, I wish... Oh, I wish we could be more loving to one another and more caring. And I hope. I hope that people will be able to take something from our conversation that is helpful to them in some way. I'm sure they will. I'm sure my audience will. We'll learn a lot from you. Thank you so much, Donna. Have Thank a good you. It's day a and keep yourself safe and at home. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Understand Suicide. 
podcast of journalist and therapist Paula Fontanelli. If you've been touched by suicide and believe your story might help others, please consider contacting Paula through her website, understandsuicide.com. <laughs>